This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Helen is off this week, so it's just me and Nina, and we're going to do Contempt. I'll kick us off. Contempt came out in 1963. It was written and directed by Jean-Luc Godard, a French Marxist who died this year at age 91. In the film, an American producer with a bunch of money sets about using his wealth to compel some Europeans to produce a vulgar, presentist film about Homer's Odyssey. The Austrian director, the famous Fritz Lang, resists in a performative way. Lang, who fled Nazi Germany rather than work for Goebbels propagandists, says that the Americans are little better than the Nazis. The Nazis use their revolvers to control the artists, while the Americans use their checkbooks. It's a carrot rather than a stick, but it has the same effect. Lang won't socialize with the American producer, but even as he grumbles, he does make the film. Lang refused the revolver, but he reluctantly submits to the checkbook. The French writer, Paul, has a harder time sorting out his stance. Paul has a wife named Camille, played by the iconic Brigitte Bardot. Paul wants to make Camille happy, and it is his quest to make her happy that ultimately destroys their marriage. You see, Paul thinks that Camille will be happy if he can make good enough money to keep her living comfortably. But Camille fell in love with Paul because she thought he was a principled playwright who would never submit to the vulgar whims of rich people, like this American producer. To make money and keep the producer happy, Paul behaves in an obsequious fashion, acceding to the producer's every demand. Even when the producer wants alone time with Camille, Paul goes along to get along. Camille is forced to watch Paul degrade himself, and she quickly becomes contemptuous of him. Paul realizes that he's losing Camille. Desperate to win her back, he says he'll do whatever she wants. If she wants him to drop out of the film, he'll drop out. But this only serves to underline the reality that Paul has no principles of his own. He will do anything to keep Camille happy, and that makes him unworthy of her love. So she runs off with the American producer instead. I read this all as a metaphor for the situation in post-war Europe. The United States is throwing money around, but for Godot, it's not making life better. Like the Nazis, the Americans don't have a sense for substantive value, and they use their preferred tool, the checkbook, to dominate cultural production. Older Europeans, like Lang, know what's going on and protest against it, but they cannot change the power dynamic. The Americans have the cash, and the Europeans don't. Younger Europeans, like Paul, have started to consider assimilating into the American value set. Paul knows there's something wrong with Americanization, but he is willing to Americanize if it will win him the heart of a beautiful woman. He would rather get laid than defend his beliefs. It is the European woman who is put in the worst spot. Camille can work, but only as a typist, making very little money of her own. If she wants to live better, she needs a husband, but the young men of Europe are unprincipled fuckboys who will do anything for (laughs) Uncle Sam's dime. In this way, they concede the superiority of American values. By acknowledging their own inferiority, they make this inferiority real. The European who resists Americanization is cool, but the European who complies is irredeemably lame. Godal suggests that a European deserves to lose the girl, not just to another European man, but to an American man. If you would bow before Uncle Sam for a few dimes, you should have to watch Uncle Sam snog it out with your wife. But Godal does not leave poor Camille in the arms of the American producer. Shortly before the film ends, he reveals that Camille intends to leave the producer too, and to once again become a typist. The producer cannot make any sense of this. From his point of view, rejecting wealthy men in favor of rejoining the workforce as a prole is completely irrational. Before Camille can go through with it, however, Godard has her die in a car crash alongside the producer. Earlier in the film, Godard has Lang say that killing characters is not a solution to the conflicts and tensions that make up a film. On Godard's own terms, then, the ending to his film is not a solution to the problems it raises. The film exists not to solve problems, but to highlight them. For Godard, the Americans are ruining Europe, and they are creating a world where the women of Europe will have to choose between marrying vulgar cretins and joining the workforce. Perhaps Godard kills Camille to spare her such an ugly choice, but the living and breathing women of Europe will not get off so easy. All right, let's hear what Nina thinks. 
Um, yeah, great. Uh, that was a very nice reading. I actually, yes, I mean, we should we should note, of course, that the reason why we're looking at contempt is because of, of Godard's uh, recent passing. Um, I think it's worth noting that he chose to end his own life with uh, via assisted suicide. Um, it's... I'm not sure why I want to note it, but I I think there's something kind of um, s- somehow significant about that in terms of what a secular cinema or a modernist cinema uh, looks like. And it, it's not like Godard hasn't made films that have a religious dimension. Like he, he makes a film about um, uh, the Virgin Mary uh, called Hail Mary. Uh, but it's it, but it's a very secular uh, film, and and there's something kind of extremely well 20th century about Godard, right? In every possible respect, you know, everything is about cinema itself. Uh, his films are very arch. Uh, the car crash uh, features in this film, also in the week in Weekend, uh, you know, as this kind of ultimate symbol, as it was for sort of J.G. Ballard as well, of a certain kind of uh, crazy modernity or modernity in its kind of excess, which is sort of death drive um, literally um, and Godard is very obsessed with Technicolor we see the use of the colour palette in this film uh, very uh, heavy use of red and yellow and blue uh, it's also a film about making films um, and in that sense is you know we could say postmodern in inverted commas um, and Godard himself uh, refers constantly to the history of cinema not just uh, Soviet cinema he he makes other films with the the Ziga Vertov group which is an obvious uh, homage to Vertov the great Soviet filmmaker um, he plays around with uh, Soviet film techniques such as uh, a disconnect between sound and image this is very uh, very Godardian move uh, to kind of, uh, in a Brechtian way, to remind you that you are watching a film. He plays uh, around with genre. He takes uh, uh, typically American genres uh, like the noir or uh, the the, uh, the image of the gangster in, in maybe more more uh, mainstream in, in inverted commas versions of his films. So in Breathless and others, um, and he kind of. Uh, you know, uh, Europeanizes uh, American genre. So he he says, you know, we can make our own cinema, but it's it's always with reference to uh, to Hollywood. Um, you know, and he will talk about uh, people in the twentieth century being the children of of Marx and Coca Cola. He makes a film about just before sixty eight in sixty seven called Le Chinoise. Um, which is about a kind of deranged uh, bourgeois Maoist group of people who run around sort of uh, shouting slogans and and you know destroying things and and uh, uh, and so on. So I mean it's it's an interesting and an obvious moment to to look at um, Godard. Uh, I think Godard never gave up on his desire for experimentation. Uh, I think like David Bowie, he's one of these people who kept going, uh, you know, throughout the decades. Uh, yet another film, yet another attempt. You know, they're not all equally successful. He made absolutely tons of films. I think there are probably very few people who have seen all of Godard's films. Um, but most people will probably be familiar with at least two or three, probably Breathless, maybe Alphaville, uh, maybe Viva Seville. Um, and I think um, Contempt is is uh it's an interesting film also psychoanalytically from our point of view on on the lack it's based on uh a book by moravia um which is sometimes translated as uh, a ghost at noon or there's a new york review of books edition which just uses contempt uh, moravia is a fantastic italian novelist 20th mid 20th century italian novelist um and i was just having another look at this uh book i've read a few moravia they're they're interesting because they are not quite uh, modernist, uh, they're not quite uh, realist, uh, they're quite psychoanalytical but more psychological, they're about the kind of impossibility of understanding the mind of another and obviously one of the major themes in this film is is this kind of... Um, the unknowability of Camille's mind. You know, she decides that she no longer loves um, the the protagonist. Um, 
it's not really clear, just as in the novel, what the occasioning cause is. It seems like there's something a slight, you know, there's a moment near the beginning where she gets into the car. She's kind of compelled by the protagonist to get into the car with the American producer. And this somehow triggers a whole series of, of doubts and ultimately this idea of contempt. Um, that she that she feels um, and she plays around with a kind of um, her desirability there's lots of kind of references to nudity obviously Brigitte Bardot is a you know unbelievably sensual <laughs> foxy uh, woman uh, you know a, a extraordinary um, actress she wasn't the original choice for this film uh, but I think she's a very uh, excellent choice um, and you know, she herself plays around with what it is to be desired precisely, uh, but ultimately not possessed by any of these men, right? As you, as you point out, you know, her, her ultimate desire is to, to, uh, an unfulfilled desire is to become a, a secretary or a typist again, which seems, uh, which seems strange. In the Moravia book, the tension that you identified between the kind of creative impulse and selling out, let's say, is drawn um, even more acutely, I would say, that the what what the protagonist wants is to earn enough money to keep his wife happy. Uh, it, she's called Amelia in the book. Um, and this is precisely the kind of, uh, yeah, the problem in a way, because the more he he works in order to satisfy what he thinks is her desire, the more kind of contempt she has uh, for him. But it's it's also unfathomable, and I think this is the important thing that cinema can depict very well. And we often discuss this, you know, this the unknowability of the other or the kind of um, impenetrable nature of the other's desire. You know, why is it that, that somebody wants something that say they, they want you, they love you, and then suddenly they don't, you know, and it's this kind of absolute, um, mysteriousness of it. And this kind of, um, you know, impossibility to come to terms, uh, uh, with this, um, yeah, almost like epistemological problem at the heart of heterosexuality. Um, you know, the uh, irreconcilability of, uh, of two, uh, desires, uh, if you like. And, and perhaps even when somebody says, Oh, this is what I want. You know, I, oh, I want a domestic life. I want you to go and make money so that I can be a, you know, stay at home and, and look after the domestic. And this is what I've always wanted. It may be that this is not actually what they, what they want. You know, what, what people say they want is not always what they want as, as we understand it. And again, cinema, I think because of its emphasis on the face, because of all of this question of form, because it's a, a mixed genre, um, can, uh, depict ambiguity in a, in a incredibly subtle way as an art form. Uh, the novel, uh, including Moravia's novel that Goddard uh, loosely based the story on, and, and, and Moravia, Goddard said, gave him permission to do it. So, so it's a very loose interpretation of the, of the novel. Um, the novel, though, you know, has to sort of point to the ambiguity in a way that the film can do more subtly through the use of face or, or, you know, movement or gesture. And there are some truly striking scenes in this film, uh, where they go to Capri, uh, this beautiful, um, Italian island where the producer has a house. And there are some extraordinary visual, um, horizon, these scenes of the, the, not only the natural beauty of Capri where Bardot is swimming next to these kind of rock formations, but also this kind of extraordinary building, this kind of dilapidated red building uh, where the characters are kind of running around and uh, naked sunbathing and trying to look for each other. And it's, you know, very, uh, very visually and architecturally um, beautiful uh, film. There, there's something just to finish about Godard. Um, which I think leaves some people cold. Um, the Goddard is, is somehow, uh, a filmmaker who is, uh, not warm. <laughs> uh, and, and that he is very well respected, uh, and is obviously kind of key, uh, in 20th century cinema, bringing together all of these questions of genre, form, sound, image, uh, these different, uh, cinematic traditions, a Soviet and European and American. Um, but that he is 
and perhaps always uh, remains um, at a distance, you know, from his uh, from his material uh, and from his uh, characters. And I, when I was younger, and I, I watched some Goddard, as you do as an aspiring young intellectual, I I often found his depictions of women, in particular, uh, very irritating in a way that I couldn't quite put my my finger on. Um, and I wonder if it's to do with this. Uh, almost excessive superficiality, you know, the use of women as kind of uh, not not only objects, it's too simple, you know, and he- if Helen were here, Helen would, would, would tell tell me off for invoking <laughs> this idea of the, uh, the gaze as, you know, and the object and, you know, it's too simplistic. But I think something about the prop, you know, the knowingness of using women as props and sometimes they're even used as props as in this film to hold books or, you know, the, the idea is, is perhaps something like the woman... Uh, lacks subjectivity other than through these kind of accessories and she herself is something like an object accessory and and perhaps this isn't fair uh, but there's something about this uh, very uh, you know in inverted commas this this use of women uh, that Goddard engages in um, as, as a kind of uh, yeah object uh, a lesson about objects uh, somehow but a subtle one um, so yeah it was interesting to return to this film I hadn't watched it for a very long time I'd forgotten lots about it um, I, I yeah was, I wonder how you uh, see it as a model of, of heterosexuality I mean this is kind of an interesting question to push on a little bit I mean I take all your points about economics and positionality and and, and the US and Europe and uh, but I wonder in terms of the relationship between men and women, what you got from this film. Yeah, so I think at the same time in this film, there's a sense in which the gender roles are very conservative. You know, the only job that's really open to her is to be a typist, and the men do, as you say, treat the women a bit like accessories or a bit like appendages. At the same time, there are some moments that I think someone who has never who, who has never seen this film or any of Godard's work and who just knows it's from the 60s would be quite surprised by, you know, the moment where he says it's her choice and she goes, well, of course, it's not my choice. You mm. could say that it's my choice, but it's not. Uh, and then he goes, well, all right, then let's go to, to Capri. Let's go to the party. And she goes, no. Right. She says no, but she also says it's not her choice. She has an awareness of that. And he is trying to pretend that that isn't the situation and pretend that the relationship is more even than it is. When, of course, her only alternative to being with him is to go back and be a typist. And I think that the film is aware of that power dynamic and sympathetic to her position in that. Uh, I also think that the film, to a large degree, has uh, her be the kind of last bastion for substantive value. All of the men that are in this film are, to some degree, compromised. Their, their values are compromised by capitalism. And she's the one who is most able to resist it, even though she's the one with the least economic power, because all she can do is take the proletarian job as a typist. And so in that way, the position of the woman is likened to the position of the proletariat in the 60s. Mm. Yes. No, I think that's right. Oh, you're, you're muted. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes. No, no, I, th- I, think, I think that's right. I, th- I think that kind of... Um, palimpsest idea of the the woman and the proletariat i think is a very goddardian uh move actually and and you know something also about the kind of ineffability of of beauty and and you know bardot's beauty for example and, and there are various points where she wears a wig um it's kind of interesting uh to kind of maybe highlight the something of the mercurial nature of 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 womanhood uh and many of Godard films uh, the male characters will say things like, uh, you are, you, she was less beautiful than she was yesterday, um, about these kind of astonishingly beautiful female <laughs> characters. And obviously, uh, God, I work with a lot of, uh, amazing, uh, women and, and often married them as well, sometimes married them. Um, and there's something about the, uh, almost like the, in the early marks when you talk about the, the kind of emptiness or the nothingness of the class, uh, you know, that that 
only has its chains to lose, that, that it is that there's a kind of emptiness, a negative collective definition of the proletariat, um, which is united only by what it doesn't have in a certain way, uh, which I think is, again, very uh, psychoanalytically appropriate to uh, understand the position of the woman. So I think uh, this is, yeah, very much something that... Um, uh, Goddard is trying to make uh, make a meal of. Um, there's a kind of it reminded me actually when we did the uh, Cohen brothers when we did. Um, uh, oh come on, Barton Fink. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know the tension between the the desire to be a playwright, you know, the serious playwright versus the commercial uh, scriptwriter for the film, you know, and it, and we see that tension play out here as well and this kind of endless back and forth about you know Hollywood and money and authenticity and creativity and the limits of all of those um, sorts of things um, and I think this is a kind of very big topic in the sort of uh, particularly around 40s uh, or an image of the 40s or 50s uh, Hollywood uh, which is what the Coen brothers are depicting um, as well and these kind of clashes of values like you say yeah, um, I think that this film is better than Barton Fink because I think it situates the struggle uh, that the playwright is having in a more of a social context. In Barton Fink, the playwright is more atomized. He's really in it for his own sense of ambition or sense of righteousness. And that, in many ways, uh, is a little strange because in that period, we would expect a little bit more social embeddedness. And in this film... He's doing it for the wife, which I think is a much more yeah. straightforward or universal reason for someone, for a man to do something that maybe he doesn't believe in or would otherwise feel uneasy about. Uh, and the willingness to, to do whatever it is that is necessary to get uh, a woman, that I think is an excellent critique of the whole contemporary, uh, you know, the, the red pill, you know, all that uh, mask stuff that completely frames being a man in terms of being the kind of person that a woman is attracted to. And this film is an excellent critique of that, all of all of that stuff in highlighting that the desperation to please a woman is, is what makes a man worthy of contempt. Mm. Yeah. I mean, contempt is a very interesting term, you know, just the specificity of that feeling because it's not quite hatred or it's, it's, you can only have contempt for someone that you're very close to. I think it's like, just as you can only sulk around someone that you're very close to, it's like contempt is that feeling of over proximity that you have when you know someone too well. I think like it's, it's, um, I, I think you can't really have contempt for strangers. You know, like the internet is, 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 for example, is not really, there's loads of hatred on the internet, but it's not contempt. Like contempt has to be, uh, you know, really familiar, really kind of proximate. I think sometimes we get contempt on the internet because people overfollow other people on social media. And so over time, a feeling as if you know a person can mm -hmm. breed a, a kind of ersatz contempt. It's not a contempt that's based on the real person, but based on an image. Yes. No, I think you're right about that, actually, because I was watching this video by Sam Vaknin, who's this kind of amazing <laughs> person who's sort of self-described sociopath, and he ma he's very, very eloquent. I, I think he's Israeli. He makes these uh, very interesting videos. Um, and he was he was trying to describe, I suppose, that, yes, that, that kind of uh, proximate or intimate uh, relationship that people have when they're fans and we've discussed this before you know the kind the of over identification yeah. yeah the parasocial um and but what happens when the the person who you're a fan or a stan of lets you down you know and then your your desire to want to punish and scapegoat this person that you formerly valorized as if you know, they were your friend or your lover in real life Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. So I think Erzat's contempt is exactly is is right. It it because of course it can't be based on any you know like if you spend a lot of time with someone, you will be annoyed by things <laughs> and they will be annoyed by you. You know, like it's this is the nature of <laughs> and it's often little trivial physical things. It's not yeah. It's not oh they did something I disagree with morally or politically. They wrote something I didn't like. It's why are you chewing with your mouth open? Right, exactly. And like families are often these sorts of places of two, of course, like, you know, uh, 
Yes, I don't know. My my brother's sort of like slightly disgusting habits come to mind. Like he would eat yogurt and then put the pot under the the sofa. Like why? Why would you do that? Like <laughs> this this kind of like horrible gesture. Um, that, that no matter how many times you said please don't do that, it's, it's horrible. He would keep doing it partly because he he knew it was so annoying. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I think it also reminds me of uh, Bunuel, I, I guess, Belle de Jour, um, and that kind of question again, very psychoanalytic about you know if you're this idea like there is no sexual relation, you know what does it actually mean? And, and, and Moravia goes into this as well. They 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 start to have very cold sex. So formally they have this very intimate relationship, you know, quote unquote normal. They're in love for two years, and then suddenly you know there is this coldness, this um, distance, um, and then. Physical intimacy becomes, uh, you know, he describes almost like uh, he's making love to a prostitute. It's almost like he doesn't know her anymore. You know, and again, a lot of films play with this idea. In the Bunuel film, um, Belle de Jour, it's only through being a prostitute that the uh, Deneuve character can achieve any form of intimacy, but it's only with a stranger and not her husband. So this is almost like a version uh, of that idea um, you know, again, about the strangeness of desire, I suppose, you know, the idea that there's some normal way of being romantically involved with someone that you love. But actually, there are all kinds of, you know, micro aggressions <laughs> or forms of violence or hostility. You know, I know I'm not talking about active, uh, you know, again, and nothing major, right? Like, no, there is a little bit violence. of hitting. That's true. That in the film there is that he slaps her at one point, and I think, there's I also think a couple the, of times. Yeah, yeah, and also I suppose the with the secretary, I suppose for want of a better word, he, you know, he sort of uh, slaps her on the ass or something, and and his wife sees him do that, and and I, I think he, you know, Godard and Moravia also like they set up these possible reasons why the contempt is triggered, right? But it's not necessarily clear that there's one thing, I guess. Yeah. One of the questions I had in watching this, and I, I didn't give an answer in my opener because I am not sure, is whether she knows why she feels contempt for him and is refusing mm. to say, or whether she herself can't quite pinpoint it. At one point late in the film, she says that she would never tell him anyway. Uh, she would never, you know, even if she were sick and dying, tell him. Does that mean she knows, but thinks that part of the reason he's worthy of contempt is that he doesn't understand? Or does she not know and she's looking to hurt him because she's upset? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. And I think it's left deliberately open. I mean, at one point, he suggests that she's upset with him because, she, you know, he imagines that she thinks that he was sort of trying to pimp her out to some extent, you know, to put her in the car with the producer and that he was kind of using her. And and, and it's not, uh, I don't think, again, that he really thinks that's what he she thinks he was doing. But I think he proffers it as a possible explanation precisely because he doesn't know, you know, and he's trying to yeah. guess, I, I think. And in some ways, by refusing to give an answer, she compels him to offer explanations. And then his yeah. explanations make him further an object of contempt. I think it, it's not reducible to one specific moment, but to kind of what I described in the opener of a general sense that he's obsequious, that he has no values apart from trying to keep her. Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. And I think that kind of power dynamic or I, I don't know if I want to a better word. And it's, it's very interesting today. I mean, how debased the conversation around power dynamics and relationships has become. You know, like you have this kind of absurd situation where if there's any power imbalance whatsoever, that somehow there's something wrong with the relationship, even though it's manifestly obvious, for example, like if you if you're married to a woman like Brigitte Bardot, I mean, she has immense <laughs> power, right? Like as a as a, uh, you know, sexual being, you know, her power lies in her beauty, um, you know, which is a form of power, right? So even if she is poor and rely on him, on him economically. She does have the option to go get any other guy that she might want. The issue is that right. all of the men are so bad in this film <laughs> that she prefers to be a typist. 
And that's the ultimate <laughs> critique of the men in the film is that Bridget Bardot rejects them all in favor of being a typist when she could have anybody she wants. Yes. And, and I'd like to go back to your point about the sort of pickup artist, red pill. You know, there is a point in that discourse where it moves quite quickly or quite dramatically from, oh, these are the things you need to do in order to sort of pick up a woman to, oh my God, if this works on women, how stupid are they? And, you know, screw women. Like I know, you know, like it becomes hateful quite quickly, that yeah. discourse. Um, it goes it red easily... pill to black pill very fast. Yeah, like it can easily tip into a kind of uh, form of resentment. Um, and yeah, and I mean sort of contempt for women in general or, you know, and there's something always uh, paradoxical about the whole pickup thing anyway, because obviously if you're using these weird techniques on somebody and then what if they fall in love with you, let's say, do you at some point say, oh, well, I was reading from a script, you know, at what point do you or do you ever say, actually, you know, I was playing a, a game? <laughs> if you want to be loved using... A set of techniques given to you by another person will not cause you to be loved. It will cause the techniques to be loved. Mm. And so then you have to live with that fact that it was never actually you that was loved. And I think a lot of men in heterosexual relationships have this sense that they did things to get their partner. And they're not really sure if the partner loves them or the things they did. Right. And so in the so you end up actually again in this very ambivalent situation and and you know I guess you see this a lot in David Lynch films as well where y you don't know whether the woman <laughs> like loves you. Um and in fact it's never really uh uh clear uh, even or especially in the in moments of intimacy. Um in fact you're often alienated completely from um from the woman. Um yeah, so I think I, you know, it's 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 a difficult one because if you're honest, let's say, if you if you you know the the whole idea of like being yourself, but being yourself is not necessarily a good idea either, right? If yourself is, you know, perhaps too much, you know, you don't want to be too much of a muchness, you know, because then you'll overwhelm the other person, you know. Well, I've always uh, said the thing to do is, you know, you know dissimulation is okay with people, but Generally, we ought to stay away from simulation. You know, we can hide things or keep things on the down low until later when we're more comfortable and we've established a tighter level of relationship, and then we can reveal some stuff. But we shouldn't be pretending things are there that aren't there because that's mm. misleading. I think we all gradually reveal more of ourselves over time as we get to know people. That, to me, seems compatible with being an honest human being. But it's mm. it's the putting on a show and pretending that you're somebody that you're not that causes so much trouble. Sure. And I think there's another option, uh, which is a negative one, which is sort of what the implication of your, what you're saying, which I think I'm, I'm sure I've done <laughs> in the past, is, a, is the oversharing too quickly in order to create a sense of um, intimacy or proximity, which was too quick yeah. in a way, you know, like a kind of... Um, it has to be done at the right pace. And if you overdo yeah. it, what it, the reason that people reject people who overshare is that it means that those people don't have a sense of what the pace is, which means they lack certain social skills that are important. That's what it means. It's not yeah. that there's necessarily anything specifically wrong with what they said. It's just the moment at which they chose to say it. I yeah, and I definitely think in the past I it's it's a slightly kind of histrionic tendency, right? It's a kind of way of performing intimacy, you know, partly because you like people and you want them to like you and you know, you think, I don't know, on some level, oh you know, let's speed this up or isn't it nice to feel close to somebody? But actually you're right, it has the kind of opposite effect. It's like, oh, this person is being way too much you know, too quickly or too intense or too, you know, and then I suppose you would think, oh, well, if they're like with that with me, they're probably like that with everybody, you know, so that person ends up with a whole series of quite superficial friendships, which lack this depth or time. Yeah. One of the criticisms, the stereotype, but one of the criticisms of Americans is the, is the excessive premature warmth in, mm. in the United States, especially in the Midwest or the South. People will be very, very, very friendly with you. 
and they'll smile and they'll be very nice to you and they'll treat you like you're a close friend almost immediately as soon as they meet you. Uh, and you know that if they're doing that with you, they're doing it with everybody. So how can you distinguish whether you are actually close to them or not? Um, because they won't say to their face, uh, to your face, what they really think of you. You can only right. infer it by how often you're invited over. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, but it's, it's interesting because I would still prefer the, uh, I don't know, the generic warmth or the, you know, the universal, uh, friendliness. Even where it wasn't specific, like you know, I think I do think I do appreciate that kind of over friendliness. I find people who are like very quiet and shy and retiring, um, or reticent, like a little bit frightening. <laughs> well, you, you can you can go the other way too, right? You can share too little too slowly, mm. and that makes it seem like maybe you you have a plot, maybe you're scheming. Yeah, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have a paranoid reading, but I would, I would think <laughs> maybe, well, maybe a little bit. I would think sometimes when I meet people who are very, very, very quiet for a long time and don't say very much, even if we're in a big social situation, I often think, oh God, is that person judging yeah, me? Yeah, lack and every, of confidence everyone. often reads as aloofness. People, it's yeah. interesting because people are quiet because they're afraid that if they say something, they'll be disliked. But then the fact that they're silent is taken to be judgmental yeah because yeah. i think especially if you're more on the extroverted histrionic side and you say too much too quickly and nobody gives and you anything like, back yeah and then you're like oh no maybe i've just sort of blurted all this crap out and this person is sitting there going like what's wrong with this idiot <laughs> yeah you don't get reassurance so that people get mismatched in the pacing of it and that's really what kills a lot of mm. friendships and relationships right from the start is a mismatch in the pacing that you can't recover from and people think it's yeah. it's them it's their specific traits or weirdnesses or hang-ups it's just the pace wasn't the same mm. it's it's a good it's a good it's a good point actually i think we don't we don't often think enough about the timing the temporality of friendship yeah you know um yeah because it's it's like having the confidence to let things unfold you know rather than like forcing an intimacy i guess yeah i think time is is the really underrated thing in, in dating discussions when you meet mm. a new person there's a kind of window where it's much more likely that it could develop into a romantic relationship and then strangely if you build the friendship long enough the window tends to close and the possibility of romance tends to go away. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't escalate earlier on, then it tends to develop on a different path. Mm. Just on the basis of how long you've known someone, because part of what makes a romantic relationship happen is the, is the newness and the exciting, mm -hmm. that, that aspect. And it has nothing to do with whether the person is, is better or worse, or you like them or don't like them. I think a lot of guys go into, into, into relationships where, where they're, they're saying, if you don't want to date me, then you must not like me. You must not think I'm good enough. You must think I'm only good enough mm -hmm. to be a friend and that friend is a lower tier for people that you or men you consider inferior. Yeah. But really, it's it's a timing thing and, and they're just kind of different tracks and you're either on one track or the other track and they're not mm -hmm. one is not higher or lower. They're just different. Sometimes you see that quite sort of schizophrenic thing when you, I, I don't know, like Instagram accounts that look at like, uh, uh, I don't know, people's awful text messages or something. And sometimes like a man is like, hey, babe, it was great to see you. And then, and then whatever, the woman doesn't respond for two days. And then it becomes this immediately hostile, like, F you, you C word. Like we, you could have had me. I would have been so good to you, whatever. You know, like this kind of absolute anger that this, this woman, whoever, you know, didn't, yeah, didn't respond in the time of the desire of the man or something. But, but obviously by doing, by acting out in that way, it kills the, you know, any possibility, any possibility. at all. Cause, yeah. cause every woman would be like, well, yikes, you know, like, I'm not speaking to you again, like you nutbag. Because you're trying you know? to make it happen, and it's obvious that you're trying to make it happen. Well, yeah, and yeah. Then, but then just to become immediately insulting when somebody doesn't mm -hmm. is like is not very, um, you know, alluring. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and I, I think you know, with the Moravia and with 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 Contempt, the Goddard film is it's interesting. Like I read this quite uh, uh, tacky but enormously successful book about love languages when I was on holiday, just just for fun. Uh, and it's uh, written by somebody called Doctor Chapman or something, and he's a kind of Christian marriage counselor. Um, and his whole thing, just as in the Moravia book, is about the two years after. So let's say, you know, most of the people he's talking about are are married. They're Christians, they're married. But he's talking about this, what happens after the initial period of of being sort of infatuated in love, if you see what I mean. So like, yes, we you meet somebody, let's say, you know, who's a spark, or da, 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 let's say, you, get, you know, you get married. But then it's like, well, what do you do after the sort of glittering weeks, as it were, or, you know, when, when things become more pragmatic and more mundane and you actually see the other person more as who they are rather than as this kind of romantic uh, fantasy or, you know, this ideal, even though they still also retain those characters characteristics as well, you also have to kind of live in an everyday way with another human being in all of their, you know, complexity and irritation <laughs> and so how do you do that without without contempt you know yeah. and that could be particularly hard i think especially for some uh, american christian couples who rush the marriage a little bit before that mm-hmm. period of time has expired because uh, perhaps they don't feel they can have sexual intercourse until they've gotten married and so mm-hmm. then uh, they're entering into the marriage without really knowing whether they can have a modus vivendi past that mark yeah, no, exactly. And it, and it's interesting that, so, you know, the Moravia book, it's, it is at this two year point, you know, they've been together for two years. And of course, this is not, this is much more European, you know, this is not about Christianity. And, you know, it's much more about this kind of, uh, yeah, this sort of psychological grey zone, like many of these kind of uh, mid 20th century uh, novels about the these relation you know relationships between men and women um but it yeah i i wonder if there is something to this i mean it sounds really blunt when you put it like that but like you know the two year period it's like is that that's you know speaking of time that's what it is you know it's like you meet someone you're in love with them you know it has its own momentum and then you're like oh now it's we're two years in. <laughs> like, well, if after you get to the end of the two year period, you want to start over with somebody else, you weren't in love with them. You were in love with the two year period. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> so I, th- I think it's very, yeah, it's very interesting to then say there's always got to be this this third idea, which is like the commitment to the relationship itself, which runs alongside your commitment to the person. You know, I mean, that's why obviously you have marriage as a contract, right? So it's not just, so once you sign the contract, it's like, yes, I'm committed to you, but I'm also committed to this piece of paper, this institution, so that when my feelings for you are complexified or you've been a total dick or I've been a dick, we are still also committed to this third thing which mediates between us, right? Yeah, this is why it's very difficult to get away from the need for some kind of institution or structure. Because yeah. if you're just thinking, oh, I love you, you can easily be confused with the feelings of desiring a person. Uh, but if you are in love with building something that is stable that, uh, of course, involves the person that you are romantically attached to, that lends a stability to the attachment to them because it's not just them, it's them as part of this longer-term project. But, yeah, some people, I think, are are more focused on the feelings that you get in the two-year period. And and maybe that's really what's going on with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's not that he won't date anyone over 25. It's just after a few years he wants... (laughs) <laughs> another exciting period yes i was speaking to someone the other day who was telling me that they used to suffer they're, they're married now and they, they have a very secure relationship with somebody but they they, they they were talking about their experience of uh yeah like he put it romance addiction or something like this you know like yes being addicted to the to the exciting bit <laughs> mm. but like yeah but you're right i mean then you would end up permanently in this kind of cycle of chasing the new thing and yeah i don't know that much about the leonardo dicaprio thing although i you know i saw him sort of getting 
uh, told off or, you know, people it's a, being It's a big meme on the internet that, you know, Leo's mm. law is that uh, when a woman turns 25, she has to be broken up with and replaced. Mm. Uh, that women have, you know, for Leonardo DiCaprio, a kind of uh, uh, warranty or something that wears out at 25. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's fair enough. I mean, uh, it, one thing I'd sort of previously understood in his arrangements is that he'd he he would get his women to sign a contract saying that they wouldn't go to the press or you know that it that or whatever. Like there was a kind of NDA. not pre. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Like a non-disclosure. Yes, exactly. So, uh, and I thought, oh well, you know, I suppose so. It makes sense, I guess, because if if that's your desire if that's what you want to do and you don't want women running to the press to say bad things about you i mean i guess make it formal <laughs> i don't i don't know i don't know if somebody that i was in a relationship with wanted an nda i would go what are you planning to do to me exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i mean i know you i, I know what you mean <laughs> Uh, I think the only NDA I ever signed was to go and see uh, a film, actually, before it before it was released. But it was uh, a very controversial experimental reality TV type film, and they, I guess they didn't want people to discuss it, you know, in public. Uh, it wasn't just yet; it was because it was very controversial. Yeah, there's a um, there's a prima facie reason for an NDA in that case. Uh, yeah. One one thing I I wanted to talk about there's in the film there's this moment where the austrian director is uh, saying that odysseus is not a modern neurotic person right not a mm. modern neurotic man and i kind of wanted to dig into what is meant by that so that the neurotic mm. is having to live in a way that the neurotic isn't fully comfortable with and doesn't fully buy into or accept. So there's some part of the neurotic which kind of rebels against the uh, way in which the neurotic has to live. So in the modern era, when if you're in a marriage, you always have an awareness that you could not be in a marriage uh, mm -hmm. and because it's a very live possibility that you could get divorced. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have to marry the person you married. You chose to marry that person. So there's a sense that uh, you could potentially... Uh, do something else or and the midlife crisis is this sense that well i could be doing something else am i really sure that what i'm doing is the thing i should be doing it's a kind of neurotic questioning of having followed a set of of norms and not really being sure if they fit you and who are you and how do you relate to the set of norms that you've been following mm -hmm. and i think the point here is that in antiquity according to this director and i'm not sure that this is true about antiquity but according to the film in antiquity you don't have this neurosis you don't have this lack of certainty about your role you just live it odysseus is real in the sense that he is just part of nature he's part of the mm -hmm. world and he just lives in it without this kind of long dance about whether he should or shouldn't be doing what he's doing yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. And also, I mean, you know, we do have an image of the heroic age, but it's also a tragic age, right? It's people who are driven by forces beyond their control and, you know, they're at the mercy of Hermatia and, and you know, flaws and all of this kind of thing. Um, rather, yeah, rather than this, yeah, neurotic, introspective, constantly anxious. And anxiety is basically having too many choices or being unable to... Um, possibilize or have an image of the future that you can stick to, right? Like, because a subjective dis dis decision, like, for example, to be married, I mean, technically is to say not only am I marrying you, but I'm also marrying marriage, but that I've subjectively decided that this is what I'm doing, in fact, right? And that this, and that I'm committed to this. But if you have a culture that says, no, actually, marriage isn't necessarily for life, it introduces a, a moment of anxiety into the whole process, right? So yeah, and and the 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 idea that the modern person has a kind of individual essence which freestands the particular decisions that they make, what they mm. do, that your routine, your life, the set of social roles you have, all of this is potentially fungible and freestands the real you, the real essential you that is inaccessible to 
uh, the outside world that is kind of reserved and fortressed in and protected from the actual life that you actually live. Uh, I think that idea has helped a lot of people by, by in a way, tormenting them. It, it kind of helps people live in roles that are not right for them, that they would not otherwise tolerate, because they have this notion that there's a real them that is somehow reserved from and protected from and untainted by the real life that they actually lead. And yeah. without that idea of, oh, the individual that freestands the roles, it would be much harder to square that. You would have to in some way reconcile what you're doing with who you are you are you know, in in antiquity insofar as you are your craft you know the cobbler mm -hmm. makes shoes and if you make shoes you're a cobbler and that is who you are you know, plato talks about different crafts as having different souls that the, the cobbler has the soul of a cobbler so if mm. you are a cobbler that is what you are uh, in the uh arthashastra in in uh, indian political thought you know you you are in this particular caste or you are in this particular stage of life that involves abandoning the householder's life in favor of different kinds of monastic uh, spiritual lives you know and you you are these things what you do is indicative of who you are uh, you know aristotle yeah. we are what we repeatedly do but here in modernity we have this notion that somehow uh, we are something separate and distinct from what we do and that allows us to do things that are a, a terrible waste of a life without really feeling like we've implicated ourselves or, or tainted ourselves and we can postpone and put off and imagine that at some future point we'll reclaim the real us. There's a tweet I saw today and it's a tweet that I, I feel very conflicted about because there's something about it that strikes me as true, but something that also strikes me as, as very false about it. And it says, you know, in our thirties, we get rid of the, uh, the, all of the norms and conventions that we've picked up in our teens and 20s and return to who we were as children. You know, that there's a kind of, of undoing of convention in, in your 30s. And there's something about it that I think there's a grain of truth in it insofar as people mm -hmm. in their 30s outside the academy, outside the university system, mm -hmm. are less socially embedded than people in their teens and 20s who are in high school or in the university system. So there is a de-socializing, especially post-COVID, I think, that's going on with people in their 30s, a kind of atomization, which does uh, cause them to become more weird. And this is in part a way of defending that becoming more weird by suggesting it's a reclaiming of who you were at some point in the past. Uh, yeah, I, so I, I see how that would be a, a cope that someone might like, right? <laughs> yeah. At the same time, yeah. I think it's kind of nonsense that there's a real you that is the child you that is hiding in the background when you go to school or you go to work. Mm. And it's a way of kind of avoiding having to really engage with the fact that you are a person who wastes your whole life in school or in work doing things that you don't identify with as, as really your activity. Mm. No, I, I agree. I, I agree. It's, um, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, it's very deep and difficult question about, you know, the habit of acquiring good habits, let's say, you know, if you decide that you want to be a particular kind of person, it's one thing to say that, right? Like, I mean, Sartre has this great joke about, you know, what's a novelist who's never written a, no a novel is not a novelist, right? Someone who's walking around constantly saying, you know, I'm a great musician or a great writer, but never produces anything. You know, it's like, you know, but then it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, what is it or what part of you decides that you want to be a particular kind of person, right? Like, and then does those things ideally, right? Like, so, oh, even, you know, I don't know, very simple example. Uh, you know, I want to be uh, fitter, like significantly fitter in six months time than I am now, right? There's an obvious course of action that one would need to to undertake in order to be that person, right? You'd need to exercise, you'd need to sort of get up and have a gym membership or whatever, right? And it's only in the doing of those things that you are that person, right? Obviously. But what is the thing that decides that you're going to acquire these habits as opposed to other habits, some of which might be less good for you? If you see what I mean, you know, what's that capacity to subjectivize or to pick a, uh, um, a role? And obviously, like you say, so, you know, some of them are not necessarily chosen, right? Like, and if we understood, in fact, how we are, uh, sometimes roles are imposed upon us, you know, as Marx would say, like, uh, actually our possibilities are narrowed, like our polyvalent capacities 
um, are, are limited by the roles that are imposed upon us. And there is no residual individual standing behind the, the role, as it were. And you can um, put it more positively as a vocation yeah. or a calling. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you're, you're just you know, swept along into something. And that's that Greek idea of fate. You're just kind of swept along mm-hmm. into it. Uh, and to try to say, you know, you, you know, who you are separate from the thing is a kind of prideful fool's errand. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, exa- exactly. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't. Yes, this notion of the self has been like enormously destructive. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I guess this is one of the great sort of uh, double edged promises of of, uh, of modernity, I guess. You know, you can be anything and anyone except that you can't really, but, you know, this is a kind of fantasy that underpins, you know, liberal democracy. Um, Yeah, there's a wonderful moment in France in the 60s where Althusser and Lacan and so on were kind mm -hmm. of picking at this idea. Uh, And then, you know, with Foucault, it once again is kind of swept under the rug and and freedom is defined in terms of the freedom of the individual from, you know, systems of power. Mm -hmm. And once you move back in that direction, that's a move back to just kind of buying the the liberal conception of the self or the individual without interrogating it. Uh, the wonderful thing about a lot of that post-war political theory is that it recognized that this is something that you could interrogate, that you could potentially imagine people not having this idea and what it would be like to not have this idea. Uh, you could look for it in antiquity and go, well, maybe this is an example of someone who doesn't have this idea. And how are they different because they don't have it? And mm-hmm. then and then that was all kind of dismissed as medicalizing and, and, and swept away. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Alta says ISA's essay on, you know, and the idea of interpolation. And he obviously refers to Pascal and the whole idea of, you know, Neil and you shall believe. Right. It's not like the belief doesn't come first. It's the action that comes first that generates the belief. Right. So the whole idea of interpolation where, you know, you are hailed as a subject. Right. You're not a pre-existing subject. It's in the moment of someone saying, hey, you in his famous example of the police officer, hailing the citizen, you know, it's in that moment that you are created as a subject. You know, there is no pre-existing subject before the moment of interpolation. Um, and so, yeah, this this idea of, of almost like choosing your unfreedom is in fact your freedom, right? So if you, precisely in the fitness example, if you say, you know, I want to be the kind of person who in six months' time is fitter than the, the, the person I am now, in a way, you're binding yourself to a whole series of uh, unfreedoms because you've created no uh, less choice. I mean, of course, you always have a choice. You can always decide not to go to the gym, even though you said, I'm going to go to the gym five times a week. But the structure itself is uh, unfreedom in a certain sense, but it's freely chosen unfreedom. Yeah, once you put yourself into a context in which you develop a habit um, yeah. and, you, and you expose yourself to that, that habit then has a constraining effect on who you can be from that point forward. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can't just say that you're not that person by claiming that your habits and you have nothing to do with each other. No, exactly. Which is which is really sort of uh, depressing if you think about it, uh, given how many bad habits there are. <laughs> and if you're basically saying, well, you are what you do, then a lot of the things that people do are not particularly great. <laughs> right. Well, everybody wants to say that they're, you know, uh, the, a great hero who just happens to spend their whole day playing video games. Mm. You know, a great hero who just happens to uh, spend their whole day working some dead end job that they don't like. Uh, and, and in this, you know, then they go home and play the video games and pretend that it's real. Mm. Yeah, I think that it's especially difficult when we start talking about roles that are are tied to physical features of the body. Mm-hmm. That's when people really start to find this reality check frustrating. The the liberal idea that there's a you that is separate from what you do has now also become a liberal idea that there's a you that is separate from what you physically look like, what you are able to do with your body, uh, your capacities. There's a you which freestands any particular trait that we might ascribe even to even to the the, you know, the rudimentary equipment that you have. I think that's a that's kind of the the point that you've been making recently, that it's kind of developed into not just 
I'm not what I do, but I'm not what my body is. I'm not anything yeah. that has anything so she, to do with reality. And it's entirely something that can be uh, made up in a, in a kind of idealist way. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and I, we see that all over the place. And I think, you know, at the same time as we've given up on a discourse of souls, you know, there is actually an elevated, more beautiful way of individuating people. But we've also given up on that. It's like you've got the individual or the self, but we don't have souls, you know, because that's that's metaphysical and theological. And, you know, yeah. nobody wants that. The self is metaphysical and theological. Yeah, the individual exactly. is. Yeah. It drives me crazy that people go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so committed to not having any kind of weighty ontological metaphysical abstractions. And then they start all of their moral and political theories with the ontology of the individual as the ultimate source for, you know, as the first principle from which everything must be derived. Exactly. Well, we're at an hour, so we'll wrap it up there. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go do the B-side for our Patreon listeners. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.